As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. So we pray that you would continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. May your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of you in the face of Christ Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to Psalm 138, the psalm we just sang together. Psalm 138. We're going to read all the verses of Psalm 138 and consider it together. Find that on page 661 of many of our Pew Bibles between the books of Job and Proverbs. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Of David, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name. And your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, when I chose this psalm to preach for Thanksgiving. I had no idea that Dr. Horton would be doing Psalm 137 uh, in the morning before I did this. So it's a happy providence that he did Psalm 137 and that I can do Psalm 138 following on the heels of it uh, because really Psalm 137 helps us to gain the proper perspective that we ought to bring to Psalm 138. Um, Psalm 138 is in a collection of Davidic psalms that come after Psalm 137, uh, eight psalms together that are all of David uh, that follow Psalm 137, that, that sad lament that we considered on Sunday morning, and that carry us through then to the end of the Psalter. Um, verse, psalms 146 through 150 that are sort of the supreme praise, the great praise that's at the end of the book of Psalms. Um, And in many ways, these eight Psalms of David that follow Psalm 137 have this kind of character of answering that Psalm, answering the crisis that's raised in Psalm 137 and the crisis that really is expressed throughout the whole third book of the Psalter. Uh, Psalms 73 through 89 have a lot of songs of crisis about where the steadfast love of the Lord has gone, where his covenant promises have gone. And Psalm 137 verse 4 really contains that note of discouragement, that note of frustration, that note of worry. Psalm 137 verse 4 says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
And in many ways, the eight psalms that follow, that are all psalms of David, form something of a response to that question, something of a response to the crisis that God's people have experienced and assuring them of God's vindication and God's victory. And that's really where Psalm 138 begins, to talk about that assurance that God's people can have. We see praises and assurances of the victory of God's people over their enemies, as one person put it. Um, And the setting we notice of Psalm 138 could hardly be different than the setting we encountered in Psalm 137. Uh, Psalm 137 talks about those who are weeping beside Babel's streams, who are being tormented by their captors, and who are lamenting the loss of Jerusalem and all that it represented. Uh, The loss of Jerusalem, the loss of the temple, the loss of the kingship, all of those things that God's people were lamenting in Psalm 137. Psalm 138 could hardly be different. Um, Right from the beginning, we're told it's a psalm of David. There is the king again, after the kingship lost. The singer of this psalm is bowing down towards the holy temple. There is the temple restored. There is a singer who's no longer in a foreign land, no longer lamenting, no, no longer tormented, but rejoicing before the Lord and singing praise to his God. Um, these psalms could not be more different. And in placing this psalm after Psalm 137, the the Holy Spirit really gives Psalm 138 a kind of post-exilic character, this sort of feeling that this is after the exile, that this is after God's people have returned, after the temple has been rebuilt, the promise of restoration. Um, If 137 was the song of sad saints in exile, 138 is the glad song of the redeemed king before a restored temple, giving thanks for the God to the God who's done it, the faithful God who has restored and redeemed his people. And that's really what this psalm is a psalm of. It's an expression of the king's thanksgiving. And so I thought it would be good for us to think about as we anticipate a day of thanksgiving tomorrow. Before you're in the turkey coma, I'm glad I get a chance to talk to you about how we ought to give thanks and how we ought to think about our God. And so as we think about this psalm together, I think we see first the king's expression of thanksgiving that he gives us at the beginning of the psalm. And then there's this glorious expansion of the king's thanksgiving in verses 4 through 6. Uh, That also carries something of the the post-exilic character of the prophets who look forward to the great day when God's kingdom would spread to the ends of the earth. And so there's a natural almost expansion of thanksgiving, of the king's thanksgiving in the second part of the psalm. And then it finally ends with the experience of thanksgiving as the king reflects on what God has done for him and what that means for his future. And so that's how we want to think about this psalm together. The king's expression of thanksgiving, his expansion of thanksgiving, and then his experience of thanksgiving. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 of our psalm comprise a glorious expression of thanksgiving to God. Uh, It's an expression that comes as an act of the king's whole being as he sings praises to God. We see first the the voice of the king being employed to his God. Uh, That verb that's translated here as give you thanks in verse 1 or give thanks in verse 2 has the sense of someone who is giving voice to their thanksgiving, praising God and exclaiming 
the praise of God for what he's done. Um, and it's this wonderful reflection of the voice of the king crying out in praise to God, giving thanks to his name, and then also singing the praise of God. And so we have both thanksgiving in prayer and praise right here at the beginning of this psalm. He speaks thanksgiving, I give you thanks, O Lord, and he sings his thanksgiving. We read that before the gods, I sing your praise. I mean, it's particularly in this singing of praise that we see how, the, how things have changed so much from Psalm 137. Didn't Dr. Horton, taking us through this psalm, powerfully show us how uh, this was a way that they tormented the captives? Sing us one of Zion's songs. And what does the king do? The king sings Zion's songs. And he sings Zion's songs in Zion. And he sings Zion's songs in the face of all the false gods. Uh, you can't really render in your face in Hebrew, but this is about as close as it comes. In the face of all the gods, I sing your praise. The king is saying there are many gods that claim to be gods like the gods of the, of the Babylonians, but those gods are no gods. Whose God has triumphed? Whose God has been victorious? Whose God is the only God? Before the gods, I sing your praise. It's an expression of the boldness of the king in the face of all other pretended gods to sing to the praise of the one God that he knows is the true God who alone is worthy of prayer and who alone is worthy of praise. And this is really giving voice to the king's whole heart. Not only is this the king using his voice to praise the Lord, we're told it's an expression of his whole heart. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And as we think about that expression, we've, we've had the opportunity to reflect before that the heart in that Old Testament conception is really the control center of all of life. The heart represents the control of all of life. It represents the intellectual side of life, the emotional side of life, the religious and moral side of life. All aspects of life are bound up in the heart. And so when he praises God with his whole heart, it's an expression of his whole being, being devoted in praise and thanksgiving to his God. It's, it's the voice of his heart that's really speaking. And we can almost say the whole of him is involved. Not just his voice, not only his whole heart, but even his body. He bows down towards the holy temple to worship. I bow down, verse 2, toward your holy temple and give thanks. And we, we see this full-blown expression of thanksgiving that David is expressing. He's bold before the other gods, but he's humble before his God, bowing down before him to give him thanks. And then he tells us why. He tells us why he's giving thanks to God. Um, why is he so filled with thanksgiving? What is the cause of all of this great praise that involves the whole of his being? It's spelled out in the second part of verses, verse 2 and into verse 3. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Just stopping there to think about that expression, some of that should be very familiar to us. There are characteristics for which he praises God that are often raised up by God's people as we think about who our God is. 
These two wonderful statements about our God that often go together in the praises of his people. Our God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who our God is. Uh, We hear that over and over again in the, the praises of thanksgiving that are raised up to God in the Old Testament. It's a recognition that our God is a God who is filled with steadfast love. It's that wonderful expression that talks about his, his covenant loyalty, his covenant love, how faithful he is to the promises he's made to the people on whom he set his love, with whom he's entered into a covenant. That, that wonderful Hebrew word, maybe you've heard it before, chesed, that sense of the love, the steadfast love, the covenant loyalty that God shows his people. And God's people often have cause to praise their God who is steadfast in his love and faithful. Permanently, reliably faithful. God is always found to be reliable to his people. He's always faithful to do for his people what they need done. Um, This is a very familiar expression of praise. uh, Something that we see other places in other psalms. But you know, then David does something very unique here. It takes a really unique turn in praising God by what he says in what follows. Steadfast love and faithfulness are very common expressions, but then we have this really unique and uncommon expression of thanksgiving, where David says, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And you you might notice in your ESVs that there's a footnote behind that verse, and the footnote directs us to say, or you could translate that, you have exalted your word above all your name. Um, it seems like translators and commentators shy away from that. Um, they'd rather say, let's, let's finesse it a little bit to see God's name and his word exalted because we're a little worried that if he exalts his word above his name, then isn't the word higher than the God whose word it is? But the reality is the Hebrew stands pretty clearly. That's a bad policy to rely exclusively on my Hebrew. So this is what my father says about the Hebrew of Psalm 138. He says here, the Hebrew as it stands says quite clearly, you have exalted your word above all your name. So what does David mean by saying that? This word has the sense really of the promise of God. And I think as David is lifting up this great hymn of thanksgiving to God, what he's saying is, I've seen your steadfast love and your faithfulness in many ways in my life. But I'm thinking in particular of a time when your promise was lifted up so high that it revealed to me something entirely new about who you are. Because really God's name is just an expression we use to talk about how God makes himself known. And what David is really saying is, I'm I'm thanking you for a particular way in which you've really made your name known to me and exalted your promise so that your name has become even more clear to me. You've really revealed yourself in a way that surpasses all of your former revelations of your name. And what does David have in mind as this supreme example of the way the Lord has showered him with his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's what he says in verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me, and my strength of soul you increased. 
This is this moves from a kind of general sense of thanksgiving to a very specific time in David's life that he's praising God for. And when we get to heaven, we'll be able to ask David what, what point in his life he had particularly in mind here. Uh, we could, I think it's only natural for us to want to sort of fit a particular day into this day he called. But David clearly has in mind some particular distress some particular moment that caused him to call out to his God for help. And what he found was when he called, God answered him. And what did God do for him? The strength of my soul, you increased. The strength of my soul, you increased. You notice there's another little footnote there. And it says, the Hebrew says, you made me bold in my soul with strength. This is a huge action verb for what the Lord did for his soul. One commentator said, this is an action that makes a big difference. Because the verb for increase means to act stormily or boisterously. You didn't just increase it a little bit. It was a sea change in the strength of my soul. It was a great deliverance of strength for my soul. Um, Some people have tried to translate, you made me bold and valiant-hearted, or you made me defiant in spirit with strength. But he's remembering that when he called God, filled his soul with strength so that he could face down the difficulty before him with renewed strength. And David is saying, in that moment, I learned something all new about you. About the way you care, and the way you provide, and the way you strengthen. And that's what I'm praising you in particular for. That day when I called, and you increased the strength of my soul to make me equal to the situation I was facing. It was a moment worth celebrating here for, for David, and it's a moment worth reflecting on for us as God's people. Because so often when we are in times of difficulty and we call out to God, what do we really want from God? We want to be removed from the situation of trouble. And there are plenty of times that the Psalms reflect on those times where God has heard his people when they called and delivered them from trouble. Deliver them out of the situation or remove the situation so it didn't face them anymore. But notice that's not what David is praising God for here. It wasn't that God removed him from the situation or removed the situation of distress from him. But what did God do? He filled him with strength in the face of that situation to face it and to endure Um, So often when we pray, we want God to remove the trouble. But sometimes what God does instead is strengthen us to meet it. Maybe even strengthen us beyond what we thought it was possible for us to meet and to endure. Don't we see a picture of that experience in the life of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? When he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He learned something about the sufficiency of God's grace for the situation he was facing. And by God's grace, he let him know that it's actually when you're weak, you're strong. It's actually when you're filled with the grace of Christ that you're stronger than you would have been had I just removed the thorn. That was Paul's experience. And this psalm reminds us that was David's experience before it was Paul's. To see what the Lord could do by his strength. I like how one commentator said, it's not always the situation which most needs changing. It is as often as not the person involved in it that needs changing. And that's what David is celebrating. When I called, you filled me with strength that I could meet the evil day. Um, And of course, God has revealed this to us in Christ now, the highest revelation of his provision for his people and for the strengthening of our souls, we can be thankful that God by his steadfast love and faithfulness has shown it to us by sending his son into the world to save sinners, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to be our helper until Christ returns in glory. And because of his steadfast love and faithfulness in Christ, The Lord teaches us that even when we are weak, we are strong. This is the expression of thanksgiving that David raises, and he really won't be happy until this kind of thanksgiving expands to the whole world. Right? He's not content to be the only one singing this song. He wants the whole world to have this appreciation of who his God is. And he looks forward to that day when David as king will not be the only king singing like this to God. He looks forward to the day when all the kings of the earth will sing this way about their God. God is so worthy of thanksgiving that it's only fitting that the whole world would give thanks to him. And just as David has personal reason to give thanks to God, so he also sees a day when the whole world will give God his glory. The whole world will see that truth that is summarized in the second part of verse 5. But it really is the heart of this psalm. For great is the glory of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. One person said this is the heart of the psalm. This is the ultimate answer to every question and struggle. The glorious God of Israel will overcome every trouble for his people. And how will he make his glory known? Verse 4 says, first he's going to make his glory known by the word of his mouth. Right, Just as David saw God's promise exalted in his life, so the whole world will come to hear and to know about the glorious promises of God. God will glorify his name ultimately in broadcasting the gospel of his son to the ends of the earth. The promise of God is made known in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that sinners can find salvation in Christ who has come into the world as an example and a proof of the love of the Father. Um, The word of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord will reveal his word 
to the ends of the earth. By the mouth of the word of the by the, the word of his mouth, his name will be glorified. It'll be by the word of his mouth and by the ways of the Lord that are seen in the world. It won't just be the word of the Lord that glorifies his name. It'll also be the ways of the Lord. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. And what is it about the way of the Lord that's going to cause people to sing his name? Because David says they'll see what kind of king he is. They're going to see him as the great king over all who is so high and lifted up, but despite the fact that he is so great and so glorious, he sees the lowly in their need. It's a wonderful expression in verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He's not too high to see the people that need him. That would have been a common problem in David's day. A king who is so high and lifted up, so important, he has no idea what's going on in his kingdom. And it's the sad reality of people in this world, especially the poor and the afflicted, that they can so often just be overlooked. I remember reading an article recently about a guy who went out to sort of experience what it's like to be homeless, and he tried to sort of beg at the end of the highway and just tried to see, you know, can, can you really make a lot of money doing that? And, you know, that was sort of the purpose of his whole article in writing this and doing what he did. But he said, you know, what really struck me and what really bothered me about the whole process is how no one would look at me. I would be at the end of the off-ramp, but no one wants to look your way. No one wants to see you. Everyone just wants to kind of look straight ahead. And he said, you just feel completely unseen. And he said, that was actually the hardest thing about it, just to become unseen. And that's how the poor in this world can be, can just be unseen. The poor and the afflicted and the downtrodden, no one sees, no one cares, no one knows. And what is going to be glorified in the Lord? It's his grace. That he's high and lifted up, but he sees. He sees and has regard for those who are in need. Um, He's not a God who does not see or does not look or does not care. He sees and he knows. And his seeing means he comes to act on their behalf. In spite of his glory, he stoops to the lowly by his grace. And again, what better picture could there be of this than what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people? There, is never, there has never been anyone in this world who was so high and lifted up, who was at the right hand of his Father, and who did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the form of a servant and to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do that? Because even though he was high and lifted up, he saw the lowly in their need. And he came to intervene. That's the, that's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God that he shows himself to be. To the lowly, he comes down from his height to minister to them. But the world will also glorify God for his justice. Because notice, he also sees the haughty in their pride. And what is he to them? The haughty he knows from afar. 
What is the problem with people who are lifted up in their pride? They think they're so high. And what will God do to them? He will make them feel every inch of how much higher he is than they are. It's almost the kind of the comedy of the Tower of Babel when people in their pride said, you know, we're going to build our way up to God. We can do it ourselves. We can build our way up to God. When God comes to see what they're doing, he has to come down to see what they're doing. It's sort of the way of Moses' way of saying they weren't close. They were not close to building their way up to God. To see what they were doing, he still had to come way down. And that's what he's going to do to the proud. He's going to show them just how much higher he is than they are. Just how lowly they are before him in the true greatness of his holiness. He's going to see them too. And he's going to take into account their wickedness. And that's why when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory, he's going to be glorified both in the grace he shows to those who have put their faith and trust in him and also in the justice he shows to the world. It's that recognition of Psalm 137 that blessed is he who pays you back. It's a blessed justice that the Lord brings. And he will be glorified in the world. Those in pride who refuse to come to him will find him to be the judge who will execute just judgment upon them for their wickedness, but he will also reveal himself to be the savior of those who've humbled themselves in repentance and faith, and he will bring them safely into his kingdom. There's a great day of glory coming, and David sees that day when it will be expanded to the ends of the earth. But then he comes back to the here and now, That's a day that's coming. It's a day that's coming soon. But David is a realist. David lives in the real world. He knows that there's a glorious day coming, but there's a difficult day now. Um, That God's people are never far from trouble in this world. And so where does he want to leave us in this psalm? He wants to give us the glorious picture of the future, but to remind us that we can experience thanksgiving here and now because of what God does for his people. Until that great day of glory, that worldwide revelation of the glory of God, we will walk in this life in the midst of trouble. And what hope does David give those who walk in this life in the midst of trouble? He testifies in verse 7 of what God has always done for him. And that gives him hope for what God will one day do for him. Um, As David gives that expanded picture of future glory, he returns to the experience of the present and why it gives him hope. Because as he returns to the present, he describes God's preserving care. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Maybe when David pointed out that in the midst of trouble, God strengthened his soul. Maybe you felt like I did when I first read that and thought, I understand that, but I'd still rather have the deliverance. I understand that truth. I'm grateful for that truth, but I'd rather have the deliverance than the strength. And what David reminds us here is strength is not the only gift that God gives. He also is a preserver of life in the midst of trouble and a deliverer from the wrath of enemies. 
One person said verse 7 shows God's total control over the battle, both as the Lord and giver of life and as stronger than the enemy. There was real trouble, there was real enemies, there was real wrath. But he says, you know, God has always preserved my life despite all the trouble I've faced. And no matter how my enemies have sought to destroy me, the Lord has extended his hand and delivered my life. That has been my experience. That has been my life. And because God is a preserver of life and a deliverer from enemies, every day of our lives now, it gives me hope for the future. That one day God will do what? He will do what he says in verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. What is the Lord's purpose for David? To preserve his life and to deliver his soul. And what David is saying, the fact that God does that for me every day of my life assures me that one day he is going to perfect that work. One day he's going to finish his preserving work, and I will be preserved. And one day he's going to finish his delivering work, and I will be delivered. And I can be sure that he will never fail to do that because of the truth he's already confessed. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God won't fail. God won't fail. That's why he ends with this prayer, which is still a prayer of confidence. Don't abandon the work of your hands. Your hand has always been a delivering hand. Don't stop it. He doesn't take his grace for granted. He realizes he needs it. He prays for it in the confidence that the Lord will give it because his steadfast love will endure forever. And it's really that preserving of life and delivering from enemies that is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Christ has done for his people. He's the fullest and and final revelation of who God is. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And when he came into the world, what did he come to do? To preserve our lives from trouble and to deliver our souls from death. And he's done that by his cross. He has delivered our souls from death and from the tyranny of the devil. Our enemies have been defeated, sin and death and the devil, by his death and resurrection. He's assured us of his own everlasting life that will one day be ours. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father to do what as our king? To defend us and preserve us in the salvation he's won for us. He is our eternal king. He's continuing to do what he's always done. And one day, he will fulfill his purpose for me, which is to preserve my life to glory and to deliver my soul from death. And he will do it, not because I'm so faithful or so worthy of being saved, but because he's the kind of God who does not abandon the work of his hands and whose steadfast love endures forever. That's the hope the Christian has. That's the ultimate hope for thanksgiving that should fill our hearts and minds this, this, this time when we give thanksgiving. We don't get so distracted by everything that else that's going on that we don't forget to thank God for what he's done for our souls.
that he's fulfilled his purpose for us in Christ. That glorious purpose that Christ expresses in John 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We we say, Amen, Lord, don't abandon the work of your hands. Do it. Raise us up. That's our prayer. That's our hope. Uh, That's the glory of what God has done. He has sent forth his hand in Christ Jesus, our Savior, and he will not forsake his work. And so we can be thankful that the Holy Spirit has given us a song of thanksgiving like this, a psalm of David that he uses to express the special gratitude of one who has been threatened but much protected. And that is the story of the Christian life. May the Holy Spirit help each one of us to make this psalm of thanksgiving our own. Giving thanks to God that he's the God who increases the strength of our souls, will preserve our lives through trouble and deliver us from the wrath of our enemies. And may we give thanksgiving with the Apostle Paul who said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have much to give you thanks for, and this time of year we particularly have our hearts and minds turned to all of the many earthly blessings that you've given to us, but help us to also give thanks for the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Fill us with that same hope with which David was filled, that we might thank you for all that you've done for our souls as the expression of a whole heart that's wholly dependent on the work of your hands. Do not abandon it, Lord. Do not abandon the work of your hands and give us that confidence that you who have begun this work in us will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. Hear us for we pray in his name. Amen.